Well, greetings, everybody. Glad to see you. Good to have the opportunity to open up God's Word with you. Very much looking forward to that, doing that together with all of us who are present in this room that we're in together today. And those of you who are checking this out in other rooms as well, maybe on our Moon Campus, welcome to you guys, or the classic venue, or perhaps you're checking this out online. We're glad that you have tuned in and are taking this in as well. Now, as we get started with things today, I've got a question for you, and my question is this. Why are you here? I want you to ask yourself that question. Why are you here? Now, I don't mean why are you here in this place for worship on this occasion. What I want you to ask is why are you here on this earth? I mean, what is your purpose? What would you come to say your purpose is all about? Author and speaker Tony Campolo used to say that when his wife would get asked a question about that, sometimes it, it didn't go all that well. He said sometimes people would come up to her, this is while she was at home with their kids and, and working to be in the house and, and raise the kids, and, and somebody would come up and ask her in somewhat of a, a demeaning sort of way, so what is it that you do, dear? And she would respond with this, She'd say, well, I am socializing two homo sapiens into the dominant values of the Judeo-Christian tradition in order that they might be instruments for the transformation of the social order into the kind of eschatological utopia that God willed from the inception of creation. Then she'd say, and what do you do? <laughs> so that's my question for you. What do you do? What's, what's your purpose? Now, if you're here and you would say, you know what? I'm not always sure that I've got that completely sorted out, then, then you're actually the same as the majority of Americans. Because the majority of Americans say that they wrestle through this idea or think about this idea of why am I here? What's my meaning? What is my purpose? The majority of Americans, at least once a month, they're trying to process their way through that. Same survey says that a little bit more than one in five Americans actually are wrestling with that idea on a daily basis. Why am I here? What is this all about? And that might be where you find yourself today as we get into this topic. And if you're one who, who does wrestle with that from time to time, then, then you've actually come on a very good day. That's because today we're going to take a look at someone that we find in the Christmas story as a baby who already has a very clear mission or purpose that they are on, this person. He comes on the scene through a miraculous birth with the surprised mother through an angelic announcement. And of course, the name of this person is John the Baptist. John the Baptist. Now, you might have thought in your mind, he's trying to trick us, and so you didn't say anything, but you might have thought in your mind, Jesus. And if you did think Jesus along the way, then, then you were also right, because that's exactly the same way that we could describe Jesus. The truth is that these two men have amazingly similar stories when it comes to the, how they come into our world. As it relates to the Christmas story, their, their lives dovetail very, very, very closely together. 
And it's part of the Christmas story that we need to understand and to recognize. But oftentimes we divorce one of them out of the story. But in this season, we have been thinking about Christmas, the rest of the story. And we've been taking a look at things that sometimes escape us and move past us. And I do believe that as we consider where Jesus is and the way that his birth circumstance dovetails together with John and his birth circumstance that we really can't divorce these from one another. We need to bring them together because there's something for us to learn in the conjunction of the two of them together. That's the why. That's the way that Luke tells us the story the way that he does. And that's primarily where we're going to begin or where we're going to be today is Luke chapter 1. And so I would invite you to go ahead and turn to Luke chapter 1. Grab a Bible, open it up, we're going to be spending a good bit of time there. We're also going to go to, into some of the other gospel accounts of, of this circumstance and specifically what was going on, and so we'll, we'll be flipping around a little bit there. But uh, the things that come out of Luke 1, I'm not going to put on the screen, but as we go to other passages, then, uh, then we will put them up on the screen to assist you with that. And uh, if you want to use your Bible app, whatever, I, I would encourage you to find your way to Luke 1. But in Luke 1, it begins with the birth of Jesus, but it's completely woven in with the narrative account of the birth of John the Baptist as well. It just kind of goes back and forth, ping-ponging back and forth between the two. And they sound very, very similar as we make our way along. And as we meet John here, it doesn't take very long for us to come to the understanding that he is around to be serving a purpose, to serving on purpose, in fact. Now, he's serving on purpose in a couple of ways, and I'm using this title in a a particular way in that regard. He's serving on purpose in that he's serving intentionally, but he's also serving on purpose in that he is serving according to his call, what God has given him to do. And it all comes to the surface as we begin this exploration of the rest of the story by starting with or by considering the story itself. Because you can never consider the rest of the story until you understand the story. And so we're going to rewind just a little bit. We're going to settle in on, well, what is the story that surrounds John and his arrival and Jesus and how they dovetail together? And so that's where we're going to start is with the story. Now, I'm giving the story a subtitle as well of its own, which is preparing the way. Preparing the way, and I'll show you why. John the Baptist is on the scene right at the beginning of Luke's gospel, but it's not the first that we see him. We actually see John the Baptist showing up in the Old Testament. Now, not personally, or he'd be really, really old when when he actually does show up on the scene in the New Testament, but he's spoken about there. In fact, 700 years before he ever is to come on the scene, the prophet Isaiah speaks about John the Baptist in these words that may very well sound pretty familiar to you. In Isaiah 40, he says, A voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. He's talking about John who had come on the scene to announce the person of Jesus, to prepare the way, to set the stage for Jesus to arrive when Jesus was ready to enter into his earthly ministry. Mark speaks to this in his gospel as well when he writes about John these words and this was his message after me comes the one more powerful than I the straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie then he gets even more explicit with this description of him which comes later from John's gospel look he says the lamb of god who takes away the sin of the world 
So John the Baptist, it's very, very plain what his responsibility or what his purpose is all about. It's, it's to announce Jesus. It's to celebrate the fact that here comes Jesus, and that's my job, essentially, that he does. And it's not by accident that this is the way that he launches his ministry. He's serving on purpose. It was a purpose that was a part of God's sovereign plan in his life long before he was ever born. And you might be here and say, all right, I I can accept that. I can take that as it relates to John the Baptist, and you just sort of leave it there. But the fact is that what is true about John the Baptist and the purpose that he has given in his life to serve at least 700 years, it's announced before he shows up, is the same sort of circumstance that you are in and that I am in. Would you believe that God had a purpose in store for your life 700 years before you were born? I completely and absolutely believe that. You have been made in God's image and made very intentionally. God has a purpose in store for you. Have you discovered it? I don't know. But is there a purpose there he has in store for you? Yes, absolutely. Part of that is very plainly laid out because it's the same purpose that everybody else in the room, every other believer in Christ has, but it goes beyond that. And as we settle into and come to understand and live out the purposes we already know, the rest starts to sort of become a little bit more clear and a little bit more obvious to us. So if you're struggling to discover that and find that, you need to begin by asking, well, am I following through and living out the purpose that I already know that has been laid out for me? And oftentimes the answer to that becomes, well, no, maybe, maybe not so much. But it is absolutely true that there is a purpose for you. You did not all of a sudden, or your mother didn't all of a sudden become pregnant, and God's like, oh man, I'm going to have to figure out something to do with that kid. Because that caught me off guard. No, absolutely not. It was very much intentional, very much understood, and God had a purpose and a plan for you. And your responsibility is to go and to discover and to see it through. You've been divinely created by God in His image. Now, John hits his stride with his purpose here, right? As Jesus is beginning his public ministry, but that's not the first encounter that they had with one another. Not at all. It goes much earlier than that. In our passage in Luke chapter 1, they have this very unusual meeting. The context is a priest named Zechariah and his wife Elizabeth, and they're both, they're this lovely old couple, and they're actually a very old couple, probably in their 80s, if not into their 90s. Godly couple, but here they are, on the scene. The circumstance for them, though, and uh, many of you know the story, is that they were childless. And, of course, in that day, it was very important to them that their legacy would live on, and without a child, that couldn't happen. And so Zechariah is praying that God would make his wife, Elizabeth, pregnant, which is a great prayer of faith, if you think about it, when she is so old. He is praying for that. I think that's pretty awesome, prayer of faith. Somehow I think that's different from how it'll be in my family. I don't think my wife is going to be wanting me to pray that prayer when she's 90. I just don't think that that's the way that it's going to go down. But Zechariah does, and God answers the prayer. In fact, the angel Gabriel shows up to tell him that his prayer is being answered. But here's the thing. Zechariah has been praying, but when he's told your wife is going to have the baby, your prayer has been answered, he doesn't believe it. Which is odd, isn't it? I mean, that he's been praying, he's been asking God to do this. God says, okay, I'll do that. And he's like, no, you won't. That just doesn't make sense. But it occurs to me that sometimes that's the way that I pray. 
Maybe sometimes that's the way that you pray. Have you ever had something that is, has been deeply embedded in you, something that you very much desire to see happen, and you pray about it, and you pray earnestly, and nothing happens, and time just sort of elapses, and, and now a lot of time has gone by, and, and you haven't really been released in your mind from, from praying that thing, because you still hope that it happens, but because so much time has elapsed, you kind of don't really think it's gonna. You pretty much have given up on it. You still kind of pray it, but don't give up on it. It could be that God is preparing that answer to that prayer right now, just as it came years after Zechariah starts praying. Don't give up, because God answers prayer. So, here's how it went down for Zechariah. Verse 18 of Luke 1, if you have it open there, you can take a look at it. It says, Zechariah asked the angel, how can I be sure of this? I'm an old man, and my wife is well along in years. Now, you can tell that this is a good husband. This is a guy who's also been married a while, and he's figured it out, because he says, I'm old, but he says of his wife, she's well along in years. Sounds very different, doesn't it? He's like, yeah, I've got one foot in the grave, but my wife, she's chronologically enhanced. <laughs> yeah, yeah, she's experienced longevity success. That's how he's describing her. This is, this is a smart man. This is a smart husband here. But to answer the question about how he could know that she would have a baby, the angel says in verse 19, look at it, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God, and I have been sent to speak to you and to tell you this good news. There are only two good angels who are mentioned by name in the Bible. One of them is Gabriel, who we see here. The other one is Michael. Sorry to disappoint you or burst your bubble, but Clarence is not in there. All right? I know this season of the year you might want it, but he's not in there. And so it's like, well, how do I know? And Gabriel says, well, here's how you know. Gabriel says, well, God told me, and I'm telling you. And so believe it. There's every reason to believe it. And he does. But his doubt put him in a circumstance where God actually shuts his mouth for the period of time that the birth or the pregnancy goes on. And speaking of the pregnancy, Elizabeth is overjoyed at her twist of fate in her life, and we come to learn that the child that she is carrying is John the Baptist. And this is where we're going to see it all dovetailing together. And the next time that she shows up in Luke's gospel, her relative Mary has come for a visit because Mary has also now been told that she is going to have a baby and that she should name her baby Jesus. And right away, the text tells us that Mary hurried off to go and see Elizabeth, her relative, and no doubt they're comparing stories and they're, they're talking about the things that are happening to her. And this wouldn't have been a simple journey for, for Mary. It's not like Elizabeth lived just down the street. It would be going like the distance to go to Akron. If you were with us last week, you are starting to understand that Akron shows up a lot in the Christmas story. If you can remember back, if you have no idea what we're talking about, go listen to last week's sermon. So Mary arrives, and then something interesting happens. Verse 41, when Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the baby leaped in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. In a loud voice, she exclaimed, blessed are you among women, and blessed is the child you will bear. 
Elizabeth obviously knew that there was something very special that's going on here, as does John, who leaps even though he's still in his mother's womb. This is pretty incredible as they encounter Mary, who's the mother of Jesus, and and Jesus probably already conceived at that point in Mary. Beautiful thing going on here. Very unusual thing, too. So fast forward three months, and it's time for Elizabeth to give birth to her baby, to John, and she does. And all of the relatives and the family, they gather around, friends, they gather around, and uh, they're all rejoicing with the not-so-young couple uh, about what God has done for them. And, And They're all like, all right, let's name the kid now. Let's name him Zechariah because, of course, you're going to do that because that's his dad's name, and he's the one who's going to carry on the legacy. And Elizabeth's like, no, 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 no. We're going to name him John. (laughs) And this is where the nosy neighbors start to poke their head in, and they're like, well, you can't name your son John. I'd be like, excuse me? It's my son. I can can name him what I want to name him. And they say, "Well, well, what does Zechariah say about it? Verse 63, he asked for a writing tablet, and to everyone's astonishment, he wrote, his name is John, and immediately his mouth was opened, and his tongue set free, and he began to speak, praising God. I love that at the end of the nine months of silence, the first thing that he does is praise God. Isn't that good? I love that. Not just that, he also prophesies. Take a look at this, verse 76, and you my child will be called a prophet of the Most High, for you will go on before the Lord to prepare the way for him, to give his people the knowledge of salvation through the forgiveness of their sins. Just another acknowledgement of the fact that John came to prepare the way for Jesus. See it all along. 700 years earlier, it says it here when he's being born. It says it when he actually starts into his ministry. says it again. There is no missing that he is serving on purpose by preparing the way for the Lord. Beautiful thing. So, this is the story of how John the Baptist comes on the scene in the way that he's, he's dovetailed together with Jesus. But what's some of the rest of the story as it relates to John in in this circumstance. I think that's very important. Well, the rest of the story is at least in part about aspects of the life uh, and ministry of an individual in the story that we don't often highlight. Then we need to acknowledge how closely the conception and birth and life of Jesus and John the Baptist, how closely tied together they really are. Their relatives, angels announce their births. They both have godly parents. Their births are miraculous. Both of them are named by God. Neither one of them follow after the profession of their father. Both of them end up preaching, and both of them die violent deaths at the hands of other people. They're so closely tied together. And because of John's connection to Jesus and the events of the incarnation, we can't just leave it there. We need to understand that not only are they tied together in the birth, in that circumstance, and Elizabeth and Mary and relation and all of the rest, they're tied together really all the way through life and into ministry. Their lives continue to intersect as John continues to do the work of announcing Jesus' arrival. And we see that to do his work, there are some things that are going to be required of him. And this is important for us to understand, and this is really where we're going to spend the remainder of our time. There are a few different things here that are required of John if he's going to fulfill this call, if he's going to serve on purpose, if he's going to prepare the way. And so I just want to give you these few quickly, and then we will be 
done. So first of all, preparing the way requires living boldly. Requires living boldly. Much has been made about the fact that John was a person who is kind of his own person. He's a guy who marches to the beat of his own drummer. And uh, for most people, if they know one thing about John, that's kind of it, that he's maybe a little bit quirky. He's a little bit out there. In fact, in in Matthew, he records in chapter 3 this where he writes about John, he says, John's clothes were made of camel's hair, and he had a leather belt around his waist. His food was locusts and wild honey. We also know that he lived out in the wilderness, though that can be a little bit misleading because the Judean wilderness would only have been about a half day's walk from the capital city of Jerusalem, if even if it would have been that long. So it's a little bit misleading to think of the wilderness in that sense, but nonetheless, he lived a pretty isolated life, and and he took some very serious vows so that he might be able to completely fulfill the call that that God had laid on him, and it's this prophetic life that he is living, and and for most prophets, they kind of live a little bit on their own, and there are usually a few quirky things about them as they're carrying out the work that God gives them to do. He's very much related to, in in, in the sense of the biblical understanding, he's, he's paralleled to Elijah, who also was a guy who was kind of in that very same mindset. And he had a very difficult ministry. A ministry, yes, of proclaiming Jesus coming, but it was beyond that. It was also a ministry of calling people to repentance and calling them to change their lives and to get straightened out with God. And that typically is not a very popular message with most people because most of us don't like to be told, you've got to change. You've got to do this. This that's going on in your life, really, you need to jettison that. You need to move in this direction. So it's very challenging. But as hard as it was, John doesn't shrink back from that, and God blesses his efforts. He's calling the people to repent of their sins, and people are repenting of their sins. The Scriptures say that the crowds came out to him and sought what they needed to do, and he baptized many of them as they repented of their sins. The Scriptures say that the tax collectors, who saw themselves as rather highfalutin, they came out to him and they said, John, what should we do? And John said plainly to them, he said, what you need to do is stop charging people things that go beyond what the actual taxes that they owe. Stop that. That's foolishness. The soldiers came out to him, and they asked him, what is it that we should do? And here's the way that he replied to them, don't extort money, and don't accuse people falsely. Be content with your pay. Apparently, that was a big problem, and a lot of them were complaining about the circumstances that they were in, and he says, stop that. And not surprisingly, it was the self-righteous religious leaders, they're the only ones who really had a problem with John because they didn't see themselves as people who were in need of any repentance at all. They were people who thought, we got our act together. And so somebody who's going to call us, it's only these religious leaders that he has an issue with. But is he afraid to call them out either? No, absolutely. He gets right in their face. Look what he says to them. He says, you brood of vipers. (laughs) You snakes, he says, produce fruit in keeping with repentance. They were walking away from God. They're the religious leaders, and they're walking away from God. They're doing their own thing. They're not honoring Christ. They're not honoring God. In fact, they're leading other people away as well. And he says, stop that. You're not in any sort of position to be doing the things that you're doing. You need to repent. And he called them out. Living boldly, that would have been a very challenging thing for him to do. One other notable act of living boldly was when he called out the king 
because the king was living against the law because he had taken his brother, his brother's wife, to be his own. That was, a, that was against the law. There were other things that he did that were unseemly and inappropriate as well. And, and John calls the king out for it. And of course, the king doesn't like that. And so he takes him and he arrests him. And he throws him into prison. And so that's where John is stuck. And it even gets worse than that because that woman who the king ended up marrying to get vengeance back on John through a certain circumstances, we don't have time to go into all of that, but through these circumstances, she asked for the head of John the Baptist on a platter. Yeah. And the king, because he had made this promise to her before all of these guests, won't go against that idea. He does it, even though the scriptures suggest to us that the king liked John and liked to listen to John and didn't want to follow through on that. He did. And John loses his life. Of course, John knew the dangers of speaking against the king. But his motive wasn't to protect himself. His motive was to serve the purpose that he had been given, to preach the message of repentance. And he does it. He lives boldly. Cost him his life, but he honors God in the process. It's a beautiful thing. Serving on purpose requires living boldly and also, secondly, embracing humility. Well, it's true that John marched to his own drummer and he wasn't afraid to tell it like it is. He also was highly respected. He had a certain popularity among the people. He had a ministry of his own that he was carrying out. He's actually mentioned in extra-biblical literature. In other words, it means that he made it into the history books of his day. That's pretty incredible, really, when you stop to think about it. He baptized many, many, many people. That's part of his ministry. That's why he's named the way that he's named. Some of those people coming from all the way across Judea, which could have been a couple-of-day trip just to come and, and experience and be part of John's ministry and be baptized by him. He had followers as far away as Ephesus which is hundreds of miles away. <laughs> it's much further than Akron. It'd be like having followers in Atlanta or something like that. It's pretty incredible. With all the attention and acclaim, you know what it would be easy to do? It'd be very tempting to start kind of thinking a lot about yourself, sort of getting full of yourself, thinking, yeah, I, I guess I am a pretty big deal. John doesn't do that. Amazingly so. He embraces humility and lives accordingly, working only toward one end, and that is to prepare the way for Jesus. He summed up all of this actually pretty succinctly in John's gospel. He says, he must become greater, I must become less. He must become greater, I must become less. And that's what happened. Jesus comes on the scene. John points the way to Jesus. And that's pretty much the beginning of the end of John's ministry. He's starting to back away now. He says, here's Jesus. You don't need me anymore. Give your attention fully over to him. He was serving his purpose and it required embracing humility. This is another of those characteristics that sometimes we can be challenged to take on for ourselves. But I have to stop and wonder, where would our lives be and what would the influence of our lives on other people be if we really embrace this idea, he must become greater, 
I must become less. So often we live the opposite of that. I must become greater. And if he becomes less so that I might become greater, well, you know, that's just the way that the cookie crumbles. He must become greater. I must become less. What would that look like for you to take that on in your life? Last week we talked about how important it was to discover what it is that how God would be leading us and that we would be following that lead. We sort of took it off of the wise men following the star. And we, we talked about looking up. And I hope that you've taken the time this week to do that. I gave you a bit of a challenge in that regard. We're very good at looking around, very good at looking down. But rarely do we look up and look up to ask the question of, of God, how is it that you would be leading me? And how is it that I can follow that call? I was doing that this week, and I was using some of those notification triggers that come up. We talked about that last week also, and it reminded me of times when it wasn't on my mind otherwise, and I took the, I took the moment to, to, to look up and to consider, God, are you leading? Well, here's part of how he's leading us. We're asking the question, here's part of how he's leading us, and I would encourage you to continue on with that same, that same idea that you'd use those triggers, and you, you would pause, and you'd stop, and, and you would look up, and not just ask, Lord, how are you leading, but but to say, Lord, I know how you're leading me, at least in part. You must become greater. I must become less. What would that look like in my life? What in the moment that I'm in? What in the circumstances that surround me today? What in the people that I'm interacting with today would it look like for me to become less and you to become greater? To give my attention over toward the end of you being made much of and me being made less. You say, that'd be hard to do. Yeah, that would be embracing humility, something that we're not often very good at, but as we do so, we would be serving on purpose because God has called us also to prepare the way, to celebrate Jesus, and to make much of him. The call on John the Baptist's life is actually the same call that is on your life and on mine as well. So there's one more step then that we're going to have to learn when serving on purpose, and it's this, facing doubt. It's about facing, this one might surprise you a bit, especially when we have just come through talking about John and his, his living boldly and him, his embracing humility and understanding his call. Whereas this seems to just kind of come out of left field, this idea of, of facing doubt. But it's real. Matthew 11 records the circumstance when John was languishing in Herod's filthy prison. And what John does is he sends some of his friends and, and followers to go to Jesus and ask them a question. Here's the question. Are you the one who is to come or should we expect someone else? Even at this point in John's life, he's experiencing some doubts. Friends, the truth is there's a deceiver in our world, and that deceiver tells lies. And sometimes we become susceptible to believing those lies. Nobody is, is, is exempt from that effort that comes against us. And when John faces what is a very, very difficult circumstance for him, he's in prison, he knows his life is probably over or will be over soon. And things just start to pile up on him. And he gets to the place where he's like, oh, do I have this right? Have I missed something along the way? And that might be some place that you find yourself. 
Maybe also in a circumstance where, where life issues are just crashing in on you. And it's hard to sort of sort them all out and understand how to make your way through it in those difficult times. Maybe a, a challenging diagnosis that you've received or, or maybe a career problem that you're going through or a re- relational crisis that you are in. You might st- start to wonder if, if you have it right because you think in your mind, well, if God was there, then I wouldn't be going through the difficulties and the challenges that I'm, I'm facing right now. Well, John is walking through that same sort of circumstance in his life. This one who has come, whose life dovetails together with Jesus. This one who's prepared the way, who's announced Jesus' arrival, who said, this is the Lamb of God who's come to take away. This is the guy who's saying, you know what? I'm wondering a little bit here. I'm questioning a few things here. Now, what I find fascinating is how Jesus responds to John's doubt. Matthew records it for us. Jesus replied, this is what Jesus is telling his followers to go back and tell John in prison. He says, go back and report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is proclaimed to the poor. This is a beautifully gentle response that Jesus gives to John. He reminds John of the things that he has done. And John has been there to see those things. His mind just sort of got confused for a moment. And so Jesus is just gently reminding him, don't forget about this. Don't forget about that. Because all of those things, the miracles, the healings, all the rest, are very clear demonstrations of exactly who Jesus is. And we can look to those ourselves as well. And not only does he not rebuke John for his doubts, he speaks to the crowds who are gathered around these words about John. It says, Truly I tell you, among those born of women, there has not risen anyone greater than John the Baptist. I love the care and the compassion that Jesus has toward John as John comes and expresses his doubts. Here's how Jesus responds. I believe that Jesus has that same sort of compassion for all the rest of us as well as we have our doubts, especially as we come and we express those things that that pop up in our lives that start to lead us to, to questions because we don't have God's perspective. We don't understand everything. We can't see all of the things that are going on behind the curtain that God is orchestrating and bringing them about, and in the moment it looks like he does not have his act together, or why has he forgotten me, or why are these things going on? And when we don't have that divine perspective, it can start to lead to questions, and it can lead to doubts. Friends, don't be afraid of your doubts. The best thing actually that you can do is acknowledge them. Notice that that's exactly what John does. As soon as these doubts crop up in his mind, what he does is he goes immediately to the source. He goes immediately to Jesus through his friends with the question, allowing Jesus to respond to the doubt and speak into his life the things that are necessary for him to navigate his way through it. 
But sometimes when doubt arises in our minds, we do the opposite. We pretend that they're not there because we're afraid that if we acknowledge doubts, we're afraid of what that might say about our trust or about the authenticity of our faith. And because we don't bring those things into the light, they can't be addressed. And now they just continue to go on and on in our minds. And sometimes they, they build and they become more and more significant and a much greater barrier than what they needed to be in the first place. Or maybe what we do with them when those doubts come up in our mind, we just turn our back on God and we say, well, if I have this doubt, it must be real. I must have my perspective exactly on. And so I don't want anything to do with him any, anymore, which is exactly the thing that takes us out of the place where we might have been able to find our need ultimately addressed. So if you're facing doubts today, bring them into the light with a trusted friend. Bring them into the light. Ask a question of of a pastor, of your small group leader, or of a teacher, and begin that journey of navigating your way toward it. Instead of just backing away altogether, or instead of burying it because you're afraid of what that person might think of you if you acknowledge that there is some doubt that's going on, stop with that mindset. Everybody in this room has doubts from time to time. Don't be afraid of it. The shame that we might feel isn't in admitting doubts, it's in refusing helps. That's when we find ourselves in trouble. And so whatever it is that you're wrestling with, if there's something that is keeping you from making progress forward in your faith, bring it up. Let somebody assist you. It may very well be that they've faced exactly the same thing. They've walked through exactly the same circumstance and they can speak into your life in a way that will assist you. John, amazing guy whose life parallels Jesus' life in so many ways, all throughout the Christmas story. But the rest of the story is that we find him serving on purpose to prepare the way for Jesus, and in so doing, shows us the perfect way to engage on behalf of Jesus. So what do we learn from him? Well, we learn to live boldly, that there are circumstances that are going to come up where you're going to have an opportunity to say, I'm going to step into that, or I don't really want to get in the middle of it. I'm afraid of what I might have to say, or I'm afraid of what that might require of me to acknowledge, or an answer I might have to give that isn't going to, to be necessarily what they want to hear. To be willing to live boldly, to be willing to embrace humility, to say, Lord, you need to become greater. I need to become less. For many of us, that's a hurdle that we're not going to be willing to step over. And I pray that God would convict you and me when that's our mindset because it's absolutely essential to be serving on purpose and that then we would also be willing to face our doubts head on because when we do those things, it's going to set us up. Those things that we, we learn from the rest of the stories, we don't just drop it as, all right, well, Elizabeth had a baby too. That's so, that's so precious. Good for Zechariah and Elizabeth. And that's kind of where it ends. And there's so much more that weaves into their story. The story connected to Jesus, connected to the incarnation. And as we live that out, we will come to the place where we don't just pat John the Baptist on the back, we come to the place where we'll be serving on purpose as well.
And I pray that that's what we would do, be preparing the way for Jesus. Speaking of the beauty of the Christ child in this season, inviting people to come and, and experience the beauty of the story as we celebrate it, even coming up on Christmas Eve so that we might find ourselves at a place where we don't just admire a story. The rest of the story is that it needs to impact our lives, and until it does, we haven't really embraced the story. So I pray that we would have the courage, the mindset, to move forward in that regard, because it calls us forward. I pray that we would walk it together, experiencing, living out the rest of the story. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, what a beautiful account this is. The lives of Zechariah and Elizabeth and, and how you've orchestrated these things to, to dovetail together. Lord, all, all a part of what we need to come and understand and recognize and live out as, as the rest of the story impacts us. That we wouldn't just say, well, it's good that Jesus served on purpose. Or even be willing to say, it's good that John served on purpose and he knew what it was and it was ordained from before he was ever born, but that we would recognize the purpose for which we have been called. A purpose that dovetails for ourselves in the story of the incarnation because it's what causes our faith to begin to soar as we recognize Jesus entered into our world so that he might provide for us hope and, and life. Lord, give us the courage to look up, the courage to live a life that makes much of you. It says that you must become greater. We must become less, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.